Welcome to the No Nonsense Edge Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm Esther Derby. Hi, Esther. Thanks for joining us today. So we wanted to talk to you about working with managers in organizations when we're trying to be agile and how coaches can be more effective. But let's start. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and your background and experience? I started my professional career as a programmer. I was a programmer for many years and I was a good programmer. So of course they made me a manager because that's what you do with good programmers, <laughs> which means they lost a good programmer and they had someone who didn't know much about management. So I, I set out to learn because it's really a completely different set of skills. I was a dev manager for some time. I was an internal consultant in a very large company and since 97 i've been out on my own and i work with large companies and small companies primarily on their organizational dynamics and their management i help them with organizational change i don't look at the code anymore i haven't written code in a long time it's interesting how many people we talk to have started off as a developer and then gone through the management track and have come out as coaches and consultants it seems like it might be quite important to have that well-rounded experience i think it helps to be able to relate to where people are coming from and i think it helps in terms of having an understanding of the roles that people have to play and how those roles contribute to the organization so do you work on agile transformations or do you work with the executives what part of the organization do you work with? I work wherever it makes sense to work. So I wouldn't say I necessarily work on agile transformations. I work with people to solve problems, which may involve agile methods, but may not. Sometimes what they need to do doesn't really have much to do with agile methods. It has to do with the way they're managing people. Sometimes it has to do with their governance systems. I can have many aspects of it. I'm not particularly hung up on the agile. I want things to work better and I want things to be more humane. That's what I care about. Yeah. And you also run agile coaching training as well for people. Yeah. I coach a lot of coaches. So on that, we've started to see a lot of coaches who have never actually been on the field. They've never worked in an agile team in the area that they're now coaching. So what's your view on that? What are you seeing? Are you seeing that having been on the field adds value or having been on the field is a prerequisite or it really doesn't matter if you're a great coach, you can coach in anything. I think it matters a lot what is needed. If the team needs to work on their technical skills, if they're learning XP programming, then you can't do that without deep expertise in those actual technical practices. So in that case, yeah, you really need to have that experience. If you're coaching on better teamwork, it helps if you have some practical and theoretical grounding on what contributes to the conditions where teamwork is going to happen. Just having been on a sports team might not be applicable to a software development team. So I think it depends on what you're doing. I find it curious that people who have never done anything in software development sometimes view themselves as qualified to coach software development. 
We have seen, I think, quite a lot of people come out of the executive coaching industry moving into agile coaching because of the money that's available. I don't think they're very credible. But they do. The coaching organizations who do the certifications would tell you that you do not need to have expertise in any particular subject matter in order to coach. That's what they would tell you. But most of the seasoned coaches I know say that the pure contentless coaching, which is where you don't need to know anything about the subject matter, you just rely on your intuition and ask questions, works for life coaching. It doesn't work for coaching people on positive psychology or coaching executives or coaching managers or coaching software development teams or helping an organization become more adaptable to the challenges they're facing. I think the closer to the teams you are, the more you need to understand about the actual practices and certainly at least the dynamics of software development. I don't particularly think that managers need to be in the code or people who are coaching managers need to understand the code, but they need to understand the dynamics of software development. If you're working in a software development organization. Yeah, I have had some discussions with people online who think that what you should be doing is asking powerful questions. And so whenever they do that, I ask them a powerful question in return and we get into this <laughs> tennis match. And then I eventually say, I think I made my point because <laughs> it doesn't really add that much value if all you do is ask questions. Asking powerful questions is an important technique, but it becomes a bit silly when it's the only thing you do. They have to be questions that fit the context and will help generate some insights about what's going on. And that takes a great deal of skill. It's not like having an index card box full of powerful questions. And I've met people who have those boxes. They just collect their powerful questions and they have to fit the context. We also have this situation where we've got McKinsey and other big consulting companies now claiming that they're agile coaches. And there were some articles that uh, McKinsey wrote, which basically said that they were the only ones who were able to evaluate agile coaches and you should ignore everybody out there unless <laughs> McKinsey recruited them for you, which no doubt means it's going to be quite expensive. What do you think about that? I think it's a very predictable cycle where the early adopters are the ones who have the in-depth knowledge. They learn it and they're able to impart some of it and coach other people in it. There are no more early adopters of Agile. We are 20 years in and there is a whole institutional field around it. And on some level, it is not surprising that the big consulting companies want to be in on it and stake their credibility. There may be certifying people to be coaches in the McKinsey way of being coaches. I don't believe there's any McKinsey certification program yet. They have been telling executives though, that you don't want to hire any of this rabble of agile coaches out there who might disagree with you and might not be aligned with your current values. Having been around some big six consulting companies. I would say they manage the executive relationship very well. They do. Yes. That's their core skill. That and rolling out playbooks. Yes. And playbooks. Yes. Playbooks. Which is very comforting to people. Who wouldn't want to know that, oh, this is going to be a smooth path and all we have to do is follow the playbook and all will be well. I get why that's alluring, but it's not that easy. You have to 
start with where you are and understand the problem you're trying to solve and then create the conditions for something else to come about, which is not what happens with a playbook. Is there any problem with rolling out the Spotify plus safe playbook in every company you go to? <laughs> is there any problem? Is this a trick question? We're hoping someday <laughs> we're going to find somebody who says, yes, do it. So if you already know how to work in an agile way, you can do safe in an agile way, but you can just as easily do safe in the way you have previously been doing things, which is true of a whole bunch of changes or processes or process innovations that are supposed to make everything better. Because unless you address the underlying structures that hold the pattern in place, you can superimpose whatever you want over it and the pattern is going to reassert itself. So you really have to look at what is contributing to the pattern that you are seeing in your organization, understand that pattern and work on softening that pattern, loosening that pattern so something else can take hold. Just overlaying something on it, whether it's safe or whatever else, is not going to bring about significant change in my experience. Yeah. So let's explore that a little bit more because we see quite a lot of bad agile out there. A lot of waterfall done in sprints, safe, which we don't think aligns with the agile values at all. There's a lot of organizations who are traditional, hierarchical and organized into functional silos who are doing agile now. And it's often seems to be superficial. So why is that? What's really going on there? It is certainly not new to Agile that this phenomenon happens. And it's another example of the pattern reasserting itself. You overlay something on the pattern, the pattern is still there. It's going to reassert itself. If that be many little waterfall sprints or we're working in an Agile way, but we have a ton of handoffs because we're still in functional silos. Those are really great examples of if you don't change the underlying structures, the same pattern is still going to be there. I saw this in the 80s when I was working for a company that decided they were going to implement a methodology to solve all their problems of late projects. And I remember the vice president saying, this wonderful methodology is now business as usual. And I looked around and I said, nothing has changed. Except that now, instead of saying documents, we're saying work products and we have job aids. But nothing had changed in the dynamics of projects and the fact that projects were still late. The structures hadn't changed. They just overlaid this methodology. So it's not new and unique to Agile. This has been along for a long time. So I'm really interested in this idea of patterns reasserting themselves. So an organization structure or the organization's hierarchy is a pattern. And if we don't change the way people collaborate and report to each other, then that pattern will reassert itself. I could say that the way we work, the tasks we do and how we hand off those tasks between people or between teams is another pattern. So if we don't fundamentally change that, the way that work happens, the way the work is handed off will reassert itself. So from your point of view, is there some macro patterns? So I think silos are one of those structures where we have really strict functional silos that are reinforced by professional identities and reinforced by reporting relationships and all those things. All those things stack up and 
help hold that sort of pattern in place that gets in the way of cross-functional collaboration. If you want cross-functional collaboration, you have to start softening some of those things. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to get rid of all of the departments, but you have to make it easier for people to collaborate and you have to soften some of the things around identities, soften some of the things around the idea about testers do this and developers do this or marketing people do this and look more at a whole product. And it doesn't mean you get rid of those specializations completely, but you have to soften them if you want something else to emerge. You have to figure out where you can create the conditions where something else can happen. So what matters most to you when you're working in this space? What I really care about is making work more humane. So if you are trying to help make work more humane, what do you need to know to be able to do it? So much of management practice is, whether consciously or not, aimed at extracting maximum labor from people. And if you think about the language people use about that, oh, we need to get the most out of people. Oh, we need to make sure people are working hard. You know, I'm sure you can think of some other examples that indicate that really management is about getting people to work hard and getting the best out of them. So fundamentally, that's extractive. And in knowledge work, that's not helpful. I think it's more important to think about how can we adjust the environment so that people can work in a collaborative and creative way to solve the problems. So not squeezing as much as we can out of people, but enabling them to do the best work they can. But I think the former is really baked into a lot of management practices. And it's not surprising when you think about where a lot of the early management practices had their origins. Do you mean in Taylorism? I think it predates Taylorism because management as a profession actually emerged when there, there started to be ventures where the owners weren't present and someone else had to account for what was going on. That's where a lot of the accounting and management practices emerged from. So where was that? In the large trading companies were some of the first ones and in plantations. So in slavery, slave plantations. Yeah, plantations with enslaved labor. Yeah, there's a great paper on the history of accounting in slave plantations, which I, I've looked at, which is really interesting. Oh, Caitlin Rosenthal's work? Yeah, what an eye-opener. I don't blame individual managers. I don't think individual managers come to work with that mindset, but those values are embedded in the system. So when you become part of the system, you take on those values. I hear people use that language. It's not our job to make people happy. It's to get them to work hard. But I don't think those people view themselves as being extractive. But that's the nature of the practices. Yeah, there's a lot of language in management about utilization. These people are not fully utilized. If you are a manager or a coach who is trying to help make work more humane in that situation, what do you need to know to be able to do it? I think it helps to understand what the conditions are for teamwork and collaboration. 
I think it helps to understand the dynamics of software development. If we're talking about another field, you need to understand the dynamics of that field. I think knowing something about creating the conditions for collaboration and trust and competence to emerge. I think those things are connected in an interesting way. Professional trust has a big component around competence. So in order for managers to trust the people who are reporting to them, they have to believe they're competent. However, a lot of the development systems that I have seen actually force people into incompetence because of the handoffs, because of the, the insane amount of work that's in process at one time because of delays caused by permissions that end up making people look less than competent, which breaks trust. So knowing something about how to create the conditions where people can actually show up as competent, which means you have to be able to understand systems. You have to be able to understand how work flows through a system. You have to understand how to make it possible for work to flow more smoothly. Then people can show up as competent and that increases trust. It creates the conditions where it's more likely people are going to be able to collaborate. I just want to explore this a little bit more. I think you're saying that leadership matters, leadership and management matters. Yes. And there are people in the agile community who say that managers should be eliminated. I don't think that's very helpful. I don't think that has helped at all. Because if you're told that we want to do this new thing in which you have no value, how do you think people are going to respond? They're going to try to hold on. You're trying to eliminate my job. Then I don't want to do this new thing. Or you're saying I have no worth. My identity as a manager is useless. I have no value. People are going to want to hold on. So it's super unhelpful. I would say that the talents and intelligence of people who are in middle management roles are undervalued and misdirected. So the highest value thing that anybody can do is not day-to-day -day task supervision. The higher value things that managers can do are work on the system and develop people. So I think as a matter of redirecting managers to focusing on understanding how work flows through the system and smoothing it out, understanding what the conditions are for a team to be successful and creating those conditions, developing people, working with people because people still want to grow and have more careers. And it's not that managers have to lay out the path, but they can facilitate the conversation. I think there's a hugely strategic role for managers in the middle and it's enabling and enhancing, enabling the work of the people who are delivering products and services and enhancing the system. I love what you're saying about the value of middle management, that their role should be to work on the system and enable people. I'm going to steal that and use it. How can we though, as agile coaches help with that? So here's something that I think happens often is that the agile coaches come in and they work with teams and they get the team doing something in a better direction, but they don't necessarily set it up so the team can continue to work that way once they're gone. Have you guys seen that? Yeah. So what I'm starting to realize is I often don't get brought in to help 
the people that are leading the teams. And so while I can help a team build the permaculture of adapting and inspecting their work, we're not helping the people above them, the people in those leadership roles to adopt that same stance. We cut them out, especially with Scrum. With Scrum, we remove those roles and ignore them. Uh, you're not worth anything. The product owner is going to do all the work. The team will get it done. Scrum coach will help with the process and we're all good. The thing I love about these podcasts is I often get personal realization out of it. And one of the ones is the people above the team, the people who, in, in an organization that has more than one team, we don't help them build a permaculture in their roles of leading those teams. So I think part of it is implicit knowledge transfer. The explicit stuff is easy. It's the implicit stuff that matters for making things more self-sustaining. And I think that's a really critical part of coaching, just making sure people can keep something going when you're gone. I think it's really tricky when a coach is brought in to go fix that team over there to then work on the other parts of the system. Because there's this status thing going on that if I, as a manager, hire you to fix this team, I did not hire you to fix me. And the idea of fixing people is offensive anyway. I have actually seen a lot of coaches be hired to work with a team and then go to the manager and just assume they want coaching. Oh, do you want some coaching from me? Most people really don't because I didn't hire you to help me. I hired you to work over there. And so it messes with the, the status fear and it can damage relationships. It's a delicate sort of thing and you can't just go barging in and start trying to coach someone who feels like there's a status difference there. Because if I need coaching, it means I'm not doing something right. And most people don't like to hear that from somebody who they view as having less status. So you have to figure out a way to work your way into partnership of some sort where any offers you make are not viewed as one upping or one downing the manager. If I think about teams and people I've helped, the people that I have seen get the most value out of that are leaders who have understood that as the team change the way they work, that leader has to change the way they collaborate and work with those teams. They tend to say, okay, so everything's changing over there. Yeah, let's have a conversation about how am I going to work with the team going forward? Because the way I used to work doesn't look like it fits anymore. Do you see a cohort of people that take that stance? That's an ideal situation where there's an ask, where you're invited to be in conversation and be in dialogue about, oh, okay, these things are changing. In response to that, I can keep doing things the way I always used to, which won't work, or I can do something else. Let's be in conversation about what that could look like. That's ideal when you're invited into that conversation. And there are ways you can make an opening for that conversation by sharing observations, by trying to understand what pressures the manager is under, trying to understand their context, what they are judged on, how their success is measured, and start relating that. But I think you have to start that pretty delicately. I saw in one of your articles that you use a three by three matrix to understand what a coach can do that is the responsibility for outcomes versus responsibility for growth and 
in that there's nine possible roles yep. you could play. Could you talk us through that? Because I think that's a broader understanding than some coaches have. Sure. So it's not original to me. I can't take credit for it, but there's the two axes that you mentioned, responsibility for growth and responsibility for results. And when you have no responsibility for growth and you have a lot of responsibility for results, you're in a kind of a hands-on role. If you have no responsibility for growth and no responsibility for results, you're in an observer role. So you're observing and you may be sharing your observations, but what they do with it is up to them. If it's all on growth and it's not on results, then it's more of a counseling role. If you are on the opposite corner from observation, so you're responsible for growth and results, you're in a partner role. And then in between, there's modeling, there's teaching, there's coaching. But that's much broader than just asking powerful questions. You may be in different roles at different times. And again, you have to think about where the status is because offering help assumes that someone is less than, at least in that area. So if you start trying to teach somebody, it assumes that they are lacking knowledge, which puts you in a one-up position. So you have to be careful with that. I like your approach of observing and then asking people about the problems that they're having. Because I think if you see some problems and you ask people, do you see this or what's happening for you? then I think people quite often do open up and ask for help. The other way to approach it is to work on the problems that people perceive as problems rather than the ones you perceive as problems. Good point. Yeah. Because that shows that one, you were listening, you care, you get it, you're smart. And that often begins to build some basis for trust. And then people are more likely to say, oh, yeah. He really helped us with this, or she really helped us with this. That makes a lot of sense to me. It's not about you. It's about you helping them. So it has to start with what they perceive as being the problem. Yeah. And that's often a, a sort of conundrum if you're brought in as an agile coach, because what the team perceives as the problem and what the manager or the person who hired you perceives as the problem are two different things. More often than you would think, the manager hasn't communicated to the team that he sees it as a problem. You have to get those lined up and not get into the trap of being the bearer of bad news to the team. That's the manager's job. I see that you've written about Agile governance, which is, I think, an emerging space. Could you tell us what that is? Governance is often thought of as something that lives with the board. And I think of governance more as how do we govern the system? How do we make the information available that is needed to make good decisions? How do we create enough shared context so that we don't have to rely on supervision. How do we make decisions? How do we set the boundaries and constraints for the system and create enough clarity about the work that needs to be done, about what is acceptable and what's unacceptable? I would say 
that it is a way of creating conditions across the organization so that the organization is able to function well and meet its mission. Okay, but couldn't you use traditional boards and things? I think traditional governance actually does not govern the system. It's often caught up in gating systems or it's related only to the board. I find the historical way of doing architectural governance doesn't work when we have teams that are adopting agile ways of working because it is around committees and gates. You do some work, you bring it to a committee as a gate and they will tell you whether that work has fit for purpose or not. With agile governance, we have to be very clear about what the teams need to achieve. And then we have to put in place guardrails about the things we really care about. So typically what we do is we'd write a, a solution architecture document that's 50 pages and then somebody would read it and then they'd pick up on the things that they know to look for and call them out for the team to go solve. With the agile approach, I could say that these are the guardrails that you must live within or come and have a conversation with me. If you stay within them, we've got governance because I've been in front of the process. That's actually a lot of it. What are the constraints? And sometimes constraints tell you, here's the boundary. James McMiniman was the first one who I heard talk about this and it made a lot of sense to me. I think traditional governance creates a lot of bottlenecks. If we just talk about architecture with say senior systems architects, everything's coming to them for review all the time and the teams can't do what they need to do. So my policy has been to push the responsibility down to the teams as much as possible for the architecture within the, the framework. So then we get the senior architect to help people map out the higher level architecture and to educate them so that they can take on more of those decisions for themselves at the more detailed level. Yeah. So I think traditional governance does create a lot of bottlenecks. I think agile governments or remote governance does not. It tries to eliminate those, those bottlenecks. What is the best implementation of agile teams and agile management that you have witnessed? I have certainly seen teams that are working incredibly well. They may or may not be doing what we would call agile practices. I have seen teams where they did have the conditions to really be functioning well as a team. They had a clear goal and they were actually a real team and there's relatively equal participation. It, it often looks like continuous mutual help and it often looks like they're having a lot of fun, which means that in many traditional management cultures, they get shut down because you're not supposed to have fun. You're supposed to work hard. So I have seen a lot of teams that were functioning really well. I have seen managers who are doing an excellent job. I haven't seen many cases where it has been systemic. I've seen pockets. Spotify is often held up as an example of a company that is doing really well in this area. I knew quite a few people at Spotify. I think what Spotify did really beautifully at one point was do a lot of experiments and say, this is the problem we're trying to solve and we're going to experiment our way into a way that works for us to solve these particular problems. And I think they did a beautiful job on that. And from what I have heard, they continue to experiment and evolve the way they are addressing things. Unfortunately, it all got codified into the Spotify model and it has been 
copied. We talked to Jason Yip, who's an agile coach at Spotify, and he was saying that they continue to experiment. That's playful growth is one of their top values. So it's about having fun while continually learning and improving, which is great. And they have continued to evolve their model. Yes. So let us all assiduously copy something that existed in a moment of time to solve a particular problem for a particular company in a particular culture that is not ours. I think maybe we should go to, to summary, Shane. What do you think? Sounds like a plan. All right. I really enjoyed this. Here's what I got out of it. If you're working closely with teams, then understanding the technical practices as a coach helps. I love the term contentless coaching. It helps me differentiate between this idea of life coaches and people that are coaching within domains. So the closer to the team you are, the more you need to understand their practices because you're helping them with both the way they work and the practices that they use. I love the idea of understanding the context and then understand or decide what to focus on. So we have to observe first. We don't just go in and go, we've seen teams like you before do this because it, it's not the best way of helping a team be successful. I'm fascinated now with this idea of fixing the underlying structural patterns. Otherwise what you do is overlay something and it will fail because the previous pattern reasserts itself. So I love this idea of finding the places where you can soften the patterns that are endemic and then see what happens as the organization heals them. And that term extractive, we're using extractive patterns on people. I also like the idea that you had around knowledge and creative work, people that love to solve problems versus factories. I like the idea that leaders take a systems thinking approach. They looked at a system, they looked at the bottlenecks and they help people unblock it. And I like the idea that to get a permaculture. We need to look at actually helping the teams and we need to help the leaders and the team and the organization to both change the way they work. I'm going to do a little bit more research around this idea of the matrix of responsible for results and growth, the nine boxes. I think it'll help me with my coaching starts. If I can use that to understand why I'm being brought in to help an organization, where do they think I'm going to sit and help them? Where do they think their problem is? That will help me refine my coaching practice to go, okay, I think I'm, you're asking me to do this. And then after observing, maybe I actually think you should be asking me to do this. What do you think? So it gives me a, a pattern or a framework to understand my coaching starts and organization. So yeah, that's coaching of coaches. That's pretty cool. Murray. You really connected with me when you said that your goal was to make work more humane because it often is really awful for a lot of people. What is our goal in doing all of this? Is it just about money or is it more? I'd hope it was more. And I find that quite inspiring to think about how can we make the world of work more humane? Cause we spend so much time there. So I think that's a good goal for us to have. A lot of organizations and management have a very extractive philosophy towards people. And maybe that is innate to capitalism. But also you could argue that growing people, enabling people and collaboration really allows you to get the most value out of people as an organization. You can harness their creativity if you do that. And we certainly see that organizations that do that in the product development space and software development space are doing very well. I get the feeling that that's what the best organizations in 
Silicon Valley are doing. I think it's very important for us to recognize that leaders and managers are important in the organization. I think that managers and leaders can help a lot if they focus on working on the system and enabling people. If they don't do those things, if they focus on controlling and micromanaging and extracting value and building their own personal empires, which a lot of people do, let's be honest, they can be uh, a big part of the problem, but there is the potential for them also to be a big part of the solution. If we can find the people who want help and want to be part of the problem and encourage them. I liked what you were saying about developing your influence with leaders and senior managers. That's very important for my work as well. And it's not about telling people you have this problem, let me fix it. It's about working with them to understand how you can help them with the problems that they have. And then that can create an opening where you can build up trust by doing things successfully to help them, which means that they will give you permission to help them with bigger problems, including some of the ones that, that you see. We've heard people before say an agile coach should come from a position of helping people, not imposing change on people. And I hear that from you as well. So how can people find out more about what you think? How can they engage with you? Because you offer coaching training, don't you? Yeah. There's my website, estherderby.com. That's probably the first place to find me. And there's information about my workshops and my coaching there. In May, I am doing a face-to-face -face workshop for the first time in two years, which is super exciting and a little scary. The workshop will be May 15th through the 20th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And it's problem solving leadership, which is five days of experiential learning on just exploring your unique leadership style with a very systemic focus. So yeah, there's information about that on my site. And if you're interested in engaging with me in any other way, shoot me an email, esther at estherderby.com. Fantastic. All right. Thank you very much for coming on, Esther. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed our conversation a lot. Yeah, no, thank you. It's been great. So catch you all later. That was the No Nonsense Agile podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.